Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Salon Podcast and another Book of the Week episode. Are we still saying Happy New Year? Um, Happy New Year. I mean, it's February. I, I, I'm going to keep saying it into March because 2022 was so shocking that I feel we just can't get 2023 off to a positive enough start. So Happy New Year. Now this week we have got a name you will recognise, one of the world's loveliest men, it has to be said, and also one of the world's most prolific writers, and just an all-round gorgeous being. It is author and national treasure Michael Rosen. Now his new memoir is called Getting Better, and you may or may not know um, that he had COVID and he was in a coma for some weeks and he very nearly died. So he's written one book since then called Many Different Kinds of Love, where he celebrates the doctors and nurses in the NHS um, who saved his life. And it was a book of the year, lots of times over. And this is another book that he's written since then. And it, as I said, is called Getting Better. Now, Getting Better is about reflections on human frailty, the ways that we cope, the power of resilience, whatever resilience means to you, because I think it means something different to everybody else. Um, and the way that Michael has overcome all the stuff that's been thrown at him during his illness and afterwards, but also before his illness. It's, it's a really wide-ranging book. It's full of really inspiring and empowering personal stories. It's absolutely lovely. It's very funny. It's very warm. You know, it's got lots of laugh moments, lots of cry moments, lots of crying from laughter moments, or crying because we can't laugh, or is it laughing because we can't cry? I don't know which way about that expression goes today. But anyway, it's a book full of feelings and you will absolutely love it. Michael has been published since 1968 and he's published nearly 150 books. So here's Michael with a reading from his new book. Hello, I'm Michael Rosen, and I'm delighted to be reading exclusively for listeners of Damien Barr's Literary Salon from my new book, Getting Better. Um, the book is about different ways of me recovering. Um, recovering from family traumas, uh, from illness, um, from feelings of inadequacy or paranoia, uh, significantly from the death of my son, uh, Eddie, and also coming back to trying to recover from COVID, uh, which I suffered from um, in 2020. So that's what the book is about. And here's a short reading for you. Chapter One. I'm alive. A stranger stops me in the street. He says, I'm so glad that you've recovered. You're alive. My first thought is, that's very kind of him. I don't know him, but I can see that he's interested enough in me or something to do with me to make the effort to stop and tell me that he's glad I'm alive. I'm glad I'm alive too. After all, I did try to die, but they, the doctors and nurses, wouldn't let me. So I thank him. A naughty thought crosses my mind as I do, which is to ask him, how do you know I'm alive? I could be a dibuk. Dibuk being the Yiddish word for a ghost. My mind rushes on, thinking of a possible book. The Dibuk of Muswell Hill. The main character is me, wandering about North London, spooking around the great grey gaunt walls of Alexandra Palace. 
Apologies for this kind of mind-wandering. I do a lot of it. I think it helps me to get better. More on that later. I thank my newfound friend and walk on. Have I recovered? I ask myself. Is that what I am now? Recovered? I check myself over. The blood clots? Gone, says the doc. The eye? Still foggy. The ear? Still muffled. The toes? Still numb. The varicose veins and piles? Not good. The pinball twinges, as I call the cramps that ping around my body, lighting up each bit of me in turn. Still there. The damned ingrown toenail, caused by Covid, whacking out my big toenail, which then grew back into my toe. Still there. Breathlessness? Gone. Weakness? Mostly gone, and the weakness that's there could be just me being 75. So am I recovered, or am I recovering? Or have I plateaued, reached a level where I'm as good as I can expect to be before I get to the slowdown in the final run-in? I continue to ponder this new state of being. I'm not the same as I was, though in some ways I'm better. I do more stretching, for example. I like stretching. I think of myself as a cat. They're very good at stretching. And it's good for the body and spirit. Hmm. But what about my mind? If I'm really honest, it's not great. I'm bothered, aren't I? I'm bothered about lots of things that come crowding in on me if I wake up in the night. Which is most nights now. The tyranny of the night, I call it. I'm bothered that my illness happened at all. I think I was stupid to have caught Covid. Why didn't I cancel those school visits, the trips to see Arsenal play, the radio work in BBC Studios? Why did I wait until the government told us to lock down? I could have stayed at home, isolating. Aha, I reasoned with myself, but I live with three other people, and they had temperatures and loss of taste before I did. So I soon realised that this is a dead-end line of thinking but it still bothers me. I'm also bothered that I'm not who I was. That person seems to have been more frivolous, more certain, less fragile than the person I am now. But why am I talking about two people here? The person I was and the person I am. This is a nonsense. I am still that person. It's just that something big happened to change me. Big things happened to all of us. When I was 16, I went on a holiday to France on my own and I think I became someone different. We often say things like, I'm a changed person. And that is part of being human, changing. Ah, so don't over-dramatise it, Michael, by talking about two people. That's what I tell myself. And yet, I cling on to this idea that there was a before state of mind... And there is this new state of mind that is the after. It's a bit sandwiched in between, which for me was the time in hospital. That's the during. Maybe I should think of these as chapters. We go through life in chapters. The parts are separate but linked. The chapter I'm in at the moment, then, is the chapter where our hero feels stupid, frail, on edge, a bit edgy, and also on an edge, an edge where I could at any moment literally fall over. I left giddiness <laughs> off that checklist earlier. I bump into the sides of tables and chairs. But it's also an edge at the top of a cliff that looks down into the pool of glum. 
I don't like admitting this, not even to myself, let alone sharing it with anyone else. Yes, there are times that even though I can walk, talk, see, hear, feel, touch, and even though I have the loveliest family in the world, I have work that I love doing, and I have all the support and praise that anyone could ever want, there are times when I look over the edge of that cliff, down into something full of loss. Where does it come from? Why do I find myself on that cliff edge? Why do I look down? How much can a person, any person, cope with? We talk of stress and strain. They're good words. They suggest that we're like steel girders, which can take weight and twist, but only up to a point. If you do too much to them, they bend, crack and break. I wonder what my cracking point is. Did I get near to it? People talk to me about post-traumatic stress disorder. They say that people like me, who were in a coma in intensive care for several weeks, nearly seven for me, may well have a form of PTSD. I've listened to people who've come back from wars and heard how they've woken up in the night, bathed in sweat, screaming, or how they've turned nasty and attacked people who love them and care for them. I don't think that's me. And yet I have what I call lonely corridor syndrome. Hmm. This is my name for a feeling that mixes loneliness, sadness and loss. It's connected to what feels like the sensation of something real, a place, a time, a smell, and yet it's no more than a vision, a kind of daydream. Lonely corridor syndrome is where I am, at one end of a long, empty corridor. It's a corridor that starts from where I am, perhaps in the loo in the middle of the night, and it links up with remembered lonely corridors in the hospital and at school. <laughs> I was often thrown out of class. Or late at night at the university where I teach. The corridors link up, stretching away into the distance with closed doors on either side, dimmed white lights overhead. I like inventing syndromes. I've got at least two others, alternate day syndrome, to describe how I exercise one day and flop out on the sofa the next, and major Hollywood star forgetting syndrome. So far, I've forgotten the names of Tom Cruise, George Clooney and Meryl Streep. I can live with this, but it does mean that I'll never agree to go on pointless again. I know that I would forget Elvis's name. I didn't used to get lonely corridor syndrome. It's part of the new me. It's part of this person who's still bugged by what's happened to him. Sometimes I call it frailty. We know what frail means. We see our oldest relatives stooping, struggling to walk or hold things. Medics talk about frail bones. Our whole constitution can be frail and someone sneezing near us can cause our whole system to fail. Hey, wait a minute. <laughs> That's probably what happened to me. Someone sneezed. The virus sprayed out of their nose at 90 miles an hour and I walked into the damp cloud of their sneeze. The virus went into my nose and mouth, down into my lungs, into my blood, invaded the cells on the lining of arteries and veins and soon I was getting clots and haemorrhages. My body rushed fluid and mucus to wherever things were breaking down and next thing I was in trouble, lungs, liver, kidneys, nerves, toes, brain. So I'm frail. Doctors, nurses, physiotherapists, occupational therapists, teams of people, squadrons, armies, saved me. I tried to die, but they wouldn't let me. 
Oh, that's the second time I've said this, isn't it? I repeat myself a lot these days. And I also repeat this to myself to remind me just how great it is that we invented this beautiful thing, the NHS, to do the most important thing in the world, fight for people's lives. But they left me with my frailty. Of course they did. They didn't abandon me. They made a judgement that got me to a point where whatever I did next was down to me. They had done their job. I was discharged, as they say. It took me a few weeks to stop thinking that every ache, every concern belonged to them. You see, when you're inside, you are in a way owned by those doctors and nurses. They have reams of paper and computer files all about you. They stand round your bed and tell you that something is 58% or 94%. They even know what your insides look like because they've looked at the scans. Fancy that. They've seen bits of you that you've not even seen yourself. You've got a thymic cyst, says one, but I'm pretty sure it's benign. What? A thymic cyst? Where? Why? I know I've got a mole on my right shoulder blade that I can't actually see, but a thymic cyst? Where is such a thing? Why do I have a cyst that is thymic? By the way, Doctor, what is a thymic cyst? And the obs. Do you know about obs? You lie in bed... And after the nurse has done your blood pressure, pulse, temperature and oxygen take-up, they do your obs. They stand at the end of the bed and stare at you. At first, if you're not used to it, it can be quite disconcerting. A person you don't know, in uniform, is looking at you very hard, with a very still look on their face, for a whole minute. Not many people do this sort of thing in real life, so you're not really ready for it. It gets worse. At the end of the obs... They write something down. You wonder what they've written. That I need a shave? That I need to pull myself together and stop being dreary? That I should have rung my wife? They don't say. Just think about it. Somewhere in the bowels of a hospital in North London, there are more than 60 days of obs all about me. Did they make a note of the wart in the middle of my forehead? Perhaps that wasn't important. So while you're in hospital... They own you. But then you come home. You're on your own. And you're still frail. What I learnt was that I had to take this on to make the frailty mine. My frailty had belonged to the doctors and nurses, but these people weren't at home with me. So I had to own my frailty. I couldn't deny it and pretend that I was stronger than I was. I couldn't dump it on someone else or try to make them as frail as me, in the hope that it would relieve me of it. It was all mine, and it was down to me to find ways to deal with it, to make it easier to carry, easier to own. That in itself was a way of owning it, taking on the responsibility of dealing with it, getting myself to the hospital, the optician, the foot clinic for the checkups, getting out of the house to walk round the block to get the exercise, lifting the saucepan and walking round the kitchen to get the strength into my arms and core. Owning your own frailty doesn't mean being defined by it. I am my frailty, but I am also more than my frailty. No matter how much I moan to myself about how feeble or stupid or dreary I am, I am more than that. I am all the other things I do, things that are nothing whatsoever to do with having been sick, having been in a state where I couldn't stand up and couldn't walk. Watching Strictly Come Dancing, 
doing a Zoom talk to some children at the other end of the country, writing a poem, meeting up with my grown-up children and a thousand other things, all are evidence to me that I am not defined by what's happened. Hmm, it's worth reminding myself of that quite often. All this has got me thinking about getting better, what it means and how we do it. In this book, you'll see me grappling with family loss, chronic illness, being sacked, lack of feeling, trying to feel good about education, being committed, paranoia, the death of my son Eddie, recovering from Covid, and how I use writing to deal with it. Along the way, I hope to offer ways of coping that'll be useful for you. I tell stories because I think stories are a great way for us to compare ourselves with the story we read. The stories aren't commands or even recommendations. They're examples for you to chew on, or even better, blueprints for you to try out. I also discover and explore ways of thinking, self-blame and self-deception, naming things as a way of solving things, and finding the absurd in our moments of greatest difficulty. I finish the book with a chapter called Raisins to be Cheerful. It sums up the advice I've given elsewhere. And no, uh, raisins is not a misprint. Raisins make me happy. Finding the things that make you happy can help you get better. I hope it helps. How lovely was that? And I totally agree with them um, about the therapeutic magic of writing. Now, it's not magic every day, it's not always going well, but there is so, for me as a writer, there is so much in that. Um, it's, it's like a medicine. Put it this way, I don't feel great if I haven't been writing. And even if what I've written isn't great, I do feel good. Does that make sense? Anyway, as Michael says, finding the things that make you happy can help you get better. He says it much better than me. That's why you should read his book. Thank you to Michael Rosen for reading from his new book, Getting Better. The book is published by Ibri and available now in all good bookshops. So get to your local indie or support us in our bookshop on bookshop.org or get along to your local library. It's free and it's there for you. So if you know somebody who could use a pick-me-up, then please recommend this episode to them. We're always grateful for your support. Thank you for listening and join us again soon.